Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a project brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. My name is Sarah Ann Minkin, and I'm the Director of Programs and Partnerships at the Foundation. Today is July 11th, 2022. What you're about to hear is a webinar we held earlier today entitled Mr. Biden Goes to the Middle East about President Biden's upcoming trip to Israel and Saudi Arabia, featuring Peter Beinart, Donna El-Kurd, Trita Parsi, and Lara Friedman. You'll hear references to resources that we shared with the audience during the webinar. You can find the full list of references with their links on our website, www.fmep.org. Come to the site and look for today's webinar under our events index. And come back for more webinars and more podcasts, www.fmep.org. Thank you very much for listening. Hello and welcome. I'm Peter Beinart, non-resident fellow with the Foundation for Middle East Peace and editor-at-large for Jewish Currents. Welcome to Mr. Biden Goes to the Middle East, a conversation hosted by the Foundation for Middle East Peace and Jewish Currents. Some housekeeping before we begin. The format for today's webinar will be a discussion between the panelists and me, ending around 11 a.m. Eastern. It's being recorded and live streamed on Facebook. Greetings to all those joining us on Facebook. We're eager to take audience questions. Please submit them via the Q&A feature at the bottom of your Zoom window. And you can do so at any time throughout the panel. I'll be keeping an eye on the Q&A box and will do my best to weave as many of your questions as possible into the discussion. Also, please keep an eye on the chat box. My colleagues at FMEP will be putting useful links and information in that box throughout the discussion. And finally, please note that we have enabled the closed captioning function so you can read the discussion. And to begin, Next week, President Biden is expected to make his first visit as president of the United States to Israel and the Persian Gulf. What is the point of his visit? What does it mean for US policy vis-a-vis -vis Israel and the Gulf? What does it mean for Palestinians? I'm glad to be here today to explore these and other questions with US-based experts. Donna El-Kurd, who is assistant professor at the University of Richmond, non-resident senior fellow at the Arab Center Washington, and non-resident fellow at the Middle East Institute in the Palestine Program. Trita Parsi, Executive Vice President and award-winning author at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, and Lara Friedman, President of the Foundation for Middle East Peace and contributing writer at Jewish Currents and a non-resident fellow at the US Middle East Project. Speakers' full bios are available on the FMAP website. So let's get started. Um, uh, uh, Laura, I wanted to start with you. Um, what do you think is the reason that um, Joe Biden is going to Israel-Palestine? He's going first to Israel-Palestine, and then he's going uh, to, to the Persian Gulf. So let's just start with the first part of the trip first. Why do you think he's going? What do you think his agenda is? Thanks, Peter. And, and thanks so much for leading this conversation today. It's very timely. Um, look, the the reasons for going to Israel um, are myriad, right? It serves domestic political purposes. Um, it is, you know, this is a, we're, let's start first, first of all, the foreign policy piece of it, right? So Naftali Bennett in, invited Biden a while ago to come to Israel, and he said he would. Um, and going there is important. This is a key ally. It's a key point for this administration that they've improved relations compared to maybe the Obama era that they have, um, rationalized relations compared to the Trump era. So, so showing that that's a good relationship is key. You've also got the Iran piece of it, which I know we're gonna talk about later, which is showing that despite the fact that there are 
um, disagreements about the right way forward with Iran, that this is something that we are working closely with Israel on and everything is fine. Beyond that, you've got the regional issue. And I know we're going to talk about you know, the Abraham Accord and that sort of thing later on. I mean, a key, a key policy position for this administration since they took office has basically been to say the Trump administration did everything in the world wrong except the Abraham Accords, which are a great success that we're building on. And we now have this huge effort in Congress to, to pass a whole new security infrastructure, whole, they call it a security architecture um, in the region. That, that's become kind of the, the touchstone of their policy going forward. And that is something the Biden administration is solidly behind. So they've got all these positive things. They wanna go there and I think really lean into how solid and positive and constructive and growing the relationship with, with Israel. And, and we can talk about sort of different aspects of that and what may challenge that on this visit. Um, and that is, I think, a fair question because, you know, the question of, you know, will there will this visit now that we're in an, an Israeli election cycle be caught up in, in, in game playing and point scoring by parties on the ground? Um, the, the settlers have promised to follow up this visit with a bunch of new outposts. Um, and Biden, of course, has a history back from 2010 of being greeted um, by the Netanyahu government at the time announcing a major new settlement. You know, are we gonna see sort of provocations, embarrassments around this visit, including by the way, the major settlement of E1, which has been temporarily taken off the agenda um, to not embarrass him too much by the previous government, um, but only delayed until September. Um, and you know, this is you know, gonna embarrass him after the fact. So you've got, you've got a bunch of pieces in play that are just purely Israel focused. But he's also going to see the Palestinians while he's there. I think if one's being really honest, that he's seeing the Palestinians while he's there because he has to. He can't go there and not see the Palestinians. I think if it's up to this administration, if you're going to judge by their record so far in office, they would rather not have anything to do with Israel-Palestine as an issue. They don't want to spend any political capital on the Palestinians at all which is why in the run-up to the visit, what you're hearing, you're seeing really in the Shreen Abu Atle, the, the US engagement on that, which, you know, to basically say, you know, we can't say who the bullet came from, but by the way, it came, probably came from Israel. They, they literally pleased nobody, um, which is really par for the course on dealing with anything such as the Palestinians. They are talking about new funding for the Palestinians for hospitals. You know, they can, you know, come up with some gestures, but you know, are they going to do anything to touch on again E1 or what's happening in Masafrayata in the in the South Hebron Hills, um, Shirin Abu Atle in you know, the 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 situation in Jerusalem with Silwan and Sheikh Jarrah? You don't you don't see that there's even the tiniest bit of energy to do anything to try to change the status quo. So if if I'm looking at this administration, I think for them a win is going to be to come out of this having not. Be, been attacked or you know, the, the, the deliverables, gestures on the Palestinians, which they don't get beaten up too much for on the right, keeping in mind that if they announce any money for the Palestinians, even humanitarian aid, Republicans in Congress will say they're violating Taylor Force Act and breaking the law and all that, um, and making a, a show of how amazingly perfect and excellent and ever-growing their relationship is uh, with Israel. I'll stop there. Um, that's great. Don, I, I want to turn to you. So uh, in the Washington Post, Biden made a point of saying he would be the first American president to fly from Ben Gurion Airport in Israel to Jeddah in Saudi Arabia as a symbol of 
his administration's efforts to strengthen this, this so-called Abraham Accords. Uh, um, you actually have a new piece uh, just out, just out in the uh, in the Washington Post in the Monkey Cage blog, um, uh, which is about what impact you think the Abraham Accords and further normalization might have in terms of human rights in the Arab world. And I'd love you to talk about what you think the actual impact of the Abraham Accords and its potential further expansion is likely to be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the Abraham Accords um, are going to have an impact both on the Palestinians as well as on the uh, domestic politics of the normalizing states. Um, and overall, I think they're going to be very much negative impacts. Um, so first, with regards to the Palestinians, um, basically, these Abraham Accords are, you know, creating a situation where there are these bilateral agreements between Arab states and, and Israel um, and developing those ties. And I'll talk about, you know, what those ties actually mean in just a second um, at the expense of the Palestinians. So the Palestinians are being completely sidelined from this conversation. And the whole framing of the Abraham Accords is that they can achieve Arab-Israeli peace um, without actually, you know, talking about the underlying reason for any kind of Arab-Israeli conflict, which is the fact that Palestinians have been denied self-determination. So um, what that means for Palestinians is, as I said, the really the, the only kind of um, uh, leverage they had uh, with the Arab Peace Initiative has now been essentially taken away. Um, they are not really included in the conversation about how to um, move forward from the current, you know, kind of untenable status quo, um, what it means for a Palestinian state moving forward, all of those things. And what it means for the pa Palestinian public um, is um, increased repression um, because these agreements have a component um, that deals with repressive technologies um, and the development of these repressive technologies, um, which, you know, we have previous research to show Israel, you know, um, experiments on Palestinians first. Um, but also um, kind of in terms of Palestinian public opinion, Palestinians are, you know, increasingly fed up with the situation. Um, they, the polling from the Palestine Center for Survey and Policy Research shows that they're um, quite, um, you know, they, they describe these these normalization deals as as treasonous and all of those things. Um, and so that means also that Palestinians are going to look at kind of the the conditions that they're in, uh, especially after the Abraham Accords, and recognize that armed strategies are really their only option that make any sense. Um, and I have some research to show that um, that is indeed what's happening in terms of like trends in public opinion, that people, the more educated, the more politically aware, the less um, they, you know, see any value in either international kind of uh, strategies, um, whether it's the International Criminal Court or any kind of advocacy on the international stage, or even local nonviolent strategies. So that's on that front. Um, on in terms of the impact of the Abraham Accords on the, you know, citizens of these of these normalizing states, um, basically what this entails is. Uh, again, increased repression um, for Emiratis, for Bahrainis, for any country that is pursuing normalization for a couple of reasons. One is that um, most Arab citizens, and we have polling to show this, um, are very much opposed to these normalization deals. So when the state kind of goes ahead and pursues these normalization deals, uh, you know, at odds with societal sentiment, um, there is often opposition and dissent, which is then cracked down on. 
Um, but then also there are these, especially with, between the UAE and, and Israel, there are these investments in repressive technologies, in the sharing of repressive technologies, including surveillance, um, that has already been used uh, um, against uh, activists in these countries. Um, and so that all kind of creates a, a deteriorating condition where the space is narrowing in these countries and people feel like they, they um, uh, are directly impacted by this foreign policy change. And lastly, there is um, an impact on kind of social ties in these countries. So I'll give an example from the Emirati case. Um, immediately following the, the signing of the Abraham Accords, they, um, they uh, sorry, like spokespeople and, and, and people uh, connected to the government online were basically um, encouraging Emiratis, uh, both citizens and like non-Emirati expats who live in the UAE to report on each other. Um, and so um, they even had like a designated app for it. Um, and so basically what Emirati activists are telling me is that this has really um, impacted kind of the levels of trust in society. People are afraid of one another um, and people have lost touch with families and things like this. And so all of that is really, um, yeah, it's just really negative moving forward um, and it's not sustainable. Um, it creates tensions between states, these states and their societies and, um, that, you know, I've described this before as like being peace in, in name only. These, these are really uh, agreements that um, uh, are authoritarian conflict management more than anything. Um, that being said, there are reasons why they are being pursued um, because of the, you know, regional instability and regional conditions um, that um, are giving these Arab states a, uh, the, the, the impression that there are, you know, real security threats that they need to uh, contend with. Um, I think that that's not unreasonable, um, and we can talk more about uh, what what those security threats uh, entail and why these governments might think that normalization is the way forward. Um, but basically, for the regular Arab citizen, it's like bad on both fronts. Yeah, I think that uh, I want to go to you, but just just quickly beforehand, I mean, I think one of the things that has been just widely accepted in the U.S. discourse um, in in this case is that any diplomatic normalization uh, is per se a good thing, right? Without asking the question of kind of what the diplomatic normalization is for, what the purpose of it is, right? I mean, if, if Russia and Hungary, which are two countries that have an acrimonious history, were to have some diplomatic breakthrough with one another, we wouldn't applaud, we would ask ourselves, what is the impact that's likely to be up for Russians and Hungarians and other people in the region of this increased partnership, right? We would see that it's probably not gonna be very good for human rights in either country or in the region, right? So when you look at partnerships between countries that want to use Israeli technology to repress their own people, Gulf countries that have been a force, uh, 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 the most profound force against democracy across the entire Middle East in terms of supporting and even sponsoring coups from Egypt to Tunisia to Sudan, um, plus an Israeli government that wants basically diplomatic cover to maintain permanent control over Palestinians who lack basic rights, I don't, then, then it seems to me that the purpose of this diplomatic normalization doesn't meet any of the stated values that the Biden administration claims to, to cherish, right? Um, um, but Shreya, I wanted to go to you. I, I, on, the, on the Saudi part, right? I mean, Biden, as you saw, laid out this, this op-ed, and I suppose the most, the, the argument that one hears for the Saudi part of the trip is, well, look, you know, Mohammed bin Salman may not be a great guy, but he's going to be in power for a long time. 
And we need Saudi Arabia because the price of oil is going through the roof and they have a lot of it. And we're in a global competition with China and we could lose them to Beijing. And we also need them uh, against Iran. Uh, so therefore, you know, we just have to kind of uh, swallow our pride, put a little bit of a blinders on in terms of the things that he's done. And uh, real politique requires us to go and basically try to patch things up. So I just wanted to put that on the table so you could respond and, and talk about how, how you see the, the value or lack thereof of, of this trip to the Gulf. Thank you, Peter. And it's a great, great pleasure to be with all of you. That is a profound misunderstanding of what realpolitik is, in my view. There are, without a doubt, moments in which every country, particularly those that take very, very public positions and pretending to be very principled and uh, driven by values and ideology, there's going to be moments in which those values and imperatives are not going to be um, coinciding with their strategic imperatives, and overwhelmingly countries opt for uh, the security uh, uh, imperative over the ideological or the uh, uh, principle one. This is not one of those cases, however, because the uh, geostrategic claim or argument for what he is doing is profoundly weak. Forget about the human rights. I mean, there's no defense of that whatsoever. But to sacrifice that for something so profoundly weak from a geostrategic perspective, um, I, I think is... Um, I can understand why the White House wants to frame it this way uh, in order to try to create some sort of a legitimacy for the decision. But what they're clinging on to is um, uh, very unconvincing. And let me explain why. First of all, when it comes to the importance of Saudi Arabia on the oil uh, in, the, in, in the energy sector, there's no doubt that obviously Saudi Arabia is an important country there. There's no doubt that Saudi Arabia is also an important country in the Muslim world as a whole. I don't think anyone would be arguing that we should seek to have a very bad relationship with that country or any other country for that matter. The question is, what type of a relationship are we having? And one of the problems with our relationship with Saudi Arabia over the course of the last 40, 50 years is that it's been so profoundly unbalanced. We have been turning a blind eye to almost every negative thing that the Saudis have been doing, whether it is the spread of Wahhabism and extremism, whether it is the war in Yemen, whether it is almost all of the different things, support for terrorism, we've been turning a blind eye to those things. Now we're saying that they play a very important role because we need more oil on the market and as a result, we just have to uh, temporarily sacrifice our human rights values and go ahead with this. But the real problem is we have actually been dependent on Saudi Arabia to the point at which we have been turning a blind eye to the many dangerous things they've done, including things that are directly detrimental to U.S. interests. And here we have an opportunity to do something different. Instead of tripling down on our dependency on uh, Saudi oil, um, we could have, uh, first of all, pursued other options, whether it is with Venezuela, whether it is to go back into the JCPOA, other things that actually would have reduced uh, the, the difficulties that we're facing right now on the energy front, but at the same time, reduced our dependency on Saudi Arabia, making sure that we're more diversified rather than constantly um, uh, being in a position in which the Saudis can dictate these things and eventually American presidents cave to them. Uh, moreover, when it comes to things such as we need to bring the Saudis closer in order to make sure that they don't move closer to Russia and China, in theory, perhaps that makes some sense, but bottom line is no one is convinced that this trip 
or what will come out of it is in any way, shape or form going to profoundly reorient uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. They understand that the world is now multipolar. They're going to play both sides. We're essentially just giving away the shop and not getting anything real in return for it. And, and again, I think it's quite interesting that the president kept on justifying the trip by saying, well, I'm doing it because the Israelis want me to do it. I'm doing it because the Israelis think that it's good. Uh, it's almost he himself rejecting these other geopolitical factors that others have been pu putting out there as a justification for this. Um, and he's just going back to the one that he thinks is probably the politically safest position for him to take, which is to say, forget about all that other stuff. I'm doing it for Israel. Yeah. Um, I want to encourage folks to put um, questions in the chat. We have a couple, but we'd love to see some more. Um, uh, Laura, I wanted to. Biden is going um, to Israel at a, um, at a at a kind of I would say unusual time in Israeli politics. Although I suppose that given that Israel just constantly has elections one after another these, these days, maybe it's not that unusual anymore. But he's going to meet with a caretaker. Prime Minister, uh, with elections coming up this fall, do you think, um, with the prospect that Benjamin Netanyahu could return to power, and and we all know how much Democratic presidents love dealing with Benjamin Netanyahu, so do you think that Biden has any part of this trip is in is is an effort by him to try to buttress Yair Lapid and other opponents of Benjamin Netanyahu in the hope that maybe he won't have to spend the remaining years of his first term uh, dealing with, with a Netanyahu prime ministership? Look, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fair question. I, if that is their intention, then they're certainly wading into some very, very fraught political waters. Um, there's no doubt that everything they do on this trip will be seen in Israel through the lens of this political cycle. Um, I suspect that they will meet with politicians from across the political spectrum. I know I read something about that. I think they will be um, working very hard to demonstrate that they're not there trying to put their finger on the scales for the next election. But that doesn't mean this doesn't become an, an election factor anyway, right? And, and it's, the, the bottom line, and I was, I'm just think, I, I was thinking about this this morning, you know, Danny Seidemann always talks about how there's, there's no window of opportunity to engage on settlements because either you engage too early or too late, right? That's the Israelis say, it's too early, nothing's happening or it's too late. And to some extent for a president in the United States, if you're, if you're in disagreement with Israeli policy, there is no place to engage. Right. With the Bennett government is we don't dare pressure them because they're fragile and we, we need this coalition to survive. So we can't pressure them on anything. Now we're in a caretaker period. So there's no one to pressure. And, you know, politically, it's just it's too difficult. And the next government is either going to be a government that's further right and doesn't give a crap about being pressured and wants probably welcomes. Um, tensions with a Democratic president because they'd rather see him replaced by a Republican in the next cycle, or it's going to be another fragile coalition that you can't pressure. So, I mean, he, he comes into this, you know, whatever intentions they have, if they have some fantasy that that coming, coming to Israel now is going to benefit them with their relations with the future government, the only thing that benefits them, the way the current U.S.-Israel relationship is structured, what benefits them is to basically put on zero pressure on anything and pander to whatever the Israelis want. I mean, let's be very clear. I mean, I don't mean it, it's I don't mean to sound very cynical, but, you know, everything they do that is that is 
if, if when they engage with Palestinians, they try to figure out a way to engage that isn't going to upset the Israelis too much, it still doesn't work, right? Their, their statement on the killing of an American citizen Palestinian who was killed, it sure looks by every possible investigation by an Israeli soldier. And when they weighed in and basically whitewashed it, but gave a, just a gentle nod that it probably came from an Israeli gun. After the Israelis said the same thing, the response of the Israeli of Israeli officials was to basically to be furious at the U.S. government for even saying that much. Right. It, it's, it's whatever they do. The, the not moving. We, we haven't reopened the consulate, but you're still going to get beaten up for giving a little more autonomy to an office within the embassy. Right. So you still didn't actually promote the policy you said that was consistent with your values or consistent with what you said you would do when you came into office. And you're still being beaten up, not having done it. Um, it's 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 hard to see how this doesn't end up becoming a factor in the Israeli political calculus with people trying to use it to benefit themselves. But it's hard to see how anything that happens domestically for Israel changes the Biden administration's policy or gives them more room to maneuver in the future, if, unless they're willing to actually rethink the way they engage Israel, which I'm thinking for domestic political reasons, they would never do. Donna, I wanted to go back to you. You, you talked a little bit about how Palestinian opinion is, is evolving. I, um, I wonder what you think options there are for, for Palestinian leaders and also Palestinian activists to respond to this very, very bleak combination of, an Ameri of a democratic president who um, is unwilling to even go back to the status quo ante pre-Donald Trump in terms of very, you know, modest things like reopening the U.S. embassy in, uh, in East Jerusalem or reopening the PLO mission, or even saying that settlement, that the U.S. settlements is illegal under international law. Biden hasn't even done any of those things, right? And then plus, obviously, mounting indifference, if not even opposition from some of the most powerful governments in the Arab world. Do you think that, for instance, it's a mistake for, do you think that Mahmoud Abbas should be meeting Biden at all? I mean, he wasn't willing, as I understand it, to meet with Trump. And, and what, what options do you think the Palestinians have for playing this relatively weak hand? Yeah, um, well, there's like ideally what they should do, mm. but they, they will not do. Um, so Talk ideally, about the ideally too, I mean, yeah, that's yeah. not what I saw. Um, ideally, the Palestinian leadership should should uh, stop clinging to the kind of Oslo framework, the the continued kind of stagnation of the Palestinian Authority. It's not even just about meeting Biden or not meeting Biden. It's about like the framing of this entire process. Like they continue to, you know, even if they have. Uh, criticisms and they get frustrated and they express those frustrations with American administrations, they're still thinking that this is the framework that they need to be playing in. Um, and they're, they're not doing that. I think, again, ideally they would seize upon um, kind of the mobilization capacity and momentum um, that has erupted in the last year um, and, and that Palestinian society has, has shown it's capable of. Um, and direct that maybe, or 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 uh, um, make it more um, effective, uh, and not act as an obstacle to it. But again, they're not doing that either. In terms of Palestinian activists, because there is kind of this bifurcation um, uh, in in, uh, in in Palestine, um, where Palestinian leadership is not at all, you know, accountable or representative anymore. Um, but Palestinian activists are, see, you know, taking the matters into their own hands. So we've got like people in Jenin camp who are arming themselves, right? Um, even though they're from Fateh, they're from the, 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 the party of Mahmoud Abbas, but they're taking a different route. Um, 
other activists are trying to uh, um, build ties um, and organize with Palestinian citizens of Israel, um, with Palestinians across, you know, historic Palestine. Um, how to, you know, what I envision for a way out um, is to connect with other um, sources of opposition and 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 um, and dissent across the region, which they're they're you know they do exist whether it's in the Gulf and in some of these countries that are normalizing or outside, you know, the broader region in Egypt and Jordan and all these places. Um, that kind of people pressure might have some impact on changing like realities on the ground um, in a way that policies have been, you know, completely uh, taking in a different direction. Um, but, you know, that there are some challenges to that as well. Um, uh, not only because a lot of these in you know countries are very repressive um and so the activists that i'm talking about do face challenges you know in bahrain in the uae in qatar in those places um but also because there is this element of um kind of polarization uh, that's happening around the palestine issue now um because hamas has realigned with iran and there is there are some elements of kind of palestinian activist circles that um are, you know, viewing the Palestinian cause as this kind of polarized, uh, um, you know, pro and anti-Western camp kind of thing. And that is having, I think, ramifications on their ability to um, connect with activists, uh, you know, across the region in a more effective way, because they're, they're starting to discuss Palestine as this kind of, um, th this kind of very, I don't know how to explain it, uh, Sorry to stutter, but it, it, it becomes the purview of, of a particular kind of politics rather than what it used to be, which is, um, you know, an issue for lots of different kinds of Arabs and a very unifying and mobilizing issue. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of a, a threat. And I can expand on that since I clearly garbled the ending there. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to it. Um, Trita, I wanted to go to you about the, the, the geopolitical implications of the of the Abraham Accords, you you think a lot about the relationship between the the kind of the the relationship between countries in the Gulf and Israel and Iran uh, and and the United States. What do you what do you see as the implications of the of of potentially further normalization between uh, Israel and um, and let's say Saudi Arabia? Uh, thanks, Peter. So um, when it comes to the geopolitical or the broad implications of the Abrams Accord, I would say that there's four things that we should be looking at. On the one hand, it is, uh, as already has been discussed, that this is just completely throwing the Palestinians under the bus and pretending that this is peace. I mean, to some extent, we can't even provide honest criticism because when you look at some of the documents, you know, the Abrams Accord uh, uh, report by uh, Kushner, for instance, made it very clear he's not trying to resolve the Palestinian issue. He's trying to move beyond the Palestinian issue, essentially sweeping it under the rug. So that's one thing. The other thing is what Dana talked about is that this is these are different countries that need uh, uh, Israel's assistance in repressing their own populations, not just because of the Abrams Accord, but in general. So even pre um, um, uh, the Abrams Accord, they had a need in this when it came to suppressing uh, sentiments in their own society, some of them because of Islamism and other things. But nevertheless, this is this is a tool that Israel has been sending to a, a lot of different countries worldwide, been securing support at the UN. Uh, in exchange for some of these um, uh, spy tools that they have been providing. Then there's two other aspects that I think is very important. First of all, uh, this is dividing the region. Uh, 
uh, in a way that actually cements conflict. Instead of seeking diplomatic solutions to problems and actually being able to move towards an inclusive security architecture, here instead we're saying, these are the countries that we're gonna be supporting and their threat is Iran and its proxies and they, these need to be contained. Well, the containment of Iran, for instance, has been going on for 40 years. People in the White House themselves have been publicly saying that that has been a driving force of instability in the region as a whole. Uh, but when you look at what is being said to justify the Abrams Accord, it's quite clear, at least from the Israeli perspective, very strongly sense that this is an opportunity to create a coalition against Iran. That threat from Iran that is being perceived in Israel as well as from some of the Arab states is essential to sustain the Abrams Accord. It's not just essential to bring it about, it is essential to sustain it, which means that you actually cannot have a resolution of tensions between Iran and some of these Arab states, because if you do, you actually undermine the very foundation that the uh, Abrams Accord is based on. 40, 50 years ago, the, the tables were actually turned. Back in the 1960s and 70s, Iran and Israel were having a very close relationship, an, un, uh, an unopen uh, uh, relationship, but it was an open secret that they were strategic allies. And it was driven mainly by a sense of common threat from the Soviet Union and from certain strong Arab nationalist states. In the 1970s, however, the Shah started improving relations with uh, Sadat in Egypt to the point in which the Israelis started to become very worried that if you have this improvement of Arab-Iranian relations, it would actually undermine the foundation for the Iranian-Israeli relationship and their uh, collaboration. I interviewed one of the Shah's ministers about this. Uh, and he almost angrily responded to me and said, Iran did not have Israel as a friend in order to have the Arabs as an enemy and rejected the notion that Iran could not move in, in that direction. I'm not so sure that the same wisdom exists right now. We actually need to have this enmity uh, that exists in the region. And there's reasons for it, for a lot of the things that uh, Iran has done and vice versa. But we need that to be sustained in order to essentially have this fake peace in one part of the region, we need to have a cementation of a real conflict on the other part of the region. And this is highly problematic because what that's gonna do is gonna bring us into the fourth element, which is um, that this will then necessitate continued American support uh, and military presence in the region for the sustainment of the Abrams Accord. On these two points, I really um, uh, encourage the viewers to take a look at Jared Kushner's um, um, report that was leaked by Political last year about the Abrams Accord. It very clearly said that the Abrams Accord needs sustained support by the United States in order to be able to survive, including this uh, military element. And it also said that uh, any improvement of relations between Iran and Arab states would complicate matters for the Abrams Accord. It's, it's pretty clear what we're then doing. We are cementing these different conflicts if, for instance, we could say, well, at least that would bring about peace between Israel and Palestine, perhaps we could then have a, a conversation about the pluses and minuses of this. But it's not even achieving the pluses. This is all bringing us down to a very, very dangerous road in my estimation.
Yeah. And I would just add one of the things that I think has generally been lost in the conversation about the Abraham Accords is that actually the Saudis, with the entire Arab League, offered to normalize relationships with Israel back in 2002, right? The condition was that there, that there would be the creation of a Palestinian state along or near the 1967 lines that was later adapted, and there would be a just and agreed upon resolution of the Palestinian refugee problem. So th th there, was a, there was a vision that actually provided normalization with the entire Arab world, um, uh, uh, with the entire Middle East, in the context of also giving Palestinians some degree of self-determination. That has now been, that was not accepted by Israel or even really responded to in a meaningful way. And so now we have this instead. Um, Don, I want to- But we do have another thing right now, if I yeah. can just interrupt you once yeah. again. We do have the Baghdad dialogue. We have this uh, effort and we have seen a significant mm -hmm. increase of diplomacy between various states in the region, which has frankly been driven by all of them concluding that the United States is leaving the region militarily. And as a result, they're all better off seeking mm. diplomatic solutions. Mm. If we then, as a result of this trip and a militarization of the Abrams Accord, go back into having a stronger military presence, we are reassuring partners in the region that we're there militarily for them, then I think we will also end up seeing the Baghdad dialogue uh, dying. And that is despite mm. the fact that it's young, despite the fact that it's not um, you know, we don't know exactly whether it would succeed or not, but it's been one of the most promising developments in the region for a very long time, precisely because it is inclusive, precisely mm. because it's driven by regional states themselves. This is not a solution that was cooked up in Washington and then imposed on the region, mm. precisely for these reasons. And it's not organizing the region against one state or creating blocks. These are all positives that we should be embracing. We may end up killing it. Yeah, very, very good point. Um, uh, Adana, we had an interesting question about the Palestinian diaspora in those Arab countries that have signed on to the Abraham Accords, or in the case of Saudi Arabia, are considering doing so. Um, and I'm interested in what uh, the impact on Palestine, there obviously has been historically a large Palestinian diaspora in the Gulf. Um, I'm interested in what the impact of the Abraham Accords is on that, on that Palestinian diaspora, and to what degree they have tried to respond to it. So it kind of depends by country. Yeah. Um, so um, just to be clear that the UAE and Bahrain have pursued official normalization, but there is kind of under the table normalization across the Gulf, um, even without like an official peace agreement. Um, so we can kind of see the Palestinian diaspora across all those kind of unofficial and official examples. Um, I think that in the UAE, the Palestinian diaspora are, you know, none of the they are they are not citizens in any of these countries right they're they're expats they have uh, you know some sort of third citizenship um generally there's been a chilling effect uh palestinians in like the uae are not comfortable um but there's not you know there's not um space for them to contest any of this um because even citizens themselves can't contest any of this um so in bahrain there is you know, more civil society, more organizing around the Palestinian issue um, and more kind of vocal and outspoken uh, um, uh, dissent to the Abraham Accords. But again, just as there has been a crackdown on that by Bahraini citizens, the same exists and to a larger degree for people who don't have the, uh, you know, the, the, the security of citizenship in these countries. In Saudi Arabia, there has been some discussion. Um, I've heard from certain activists that, um, well, first, there was a crackdown on certain Palestinian activists uh, who were connected to Hamas. So there were like these trials and and, and, and uh, people went to jail and things like that. Um, but also people have said that, and I can't really, 
100% confirm this because I don't have contact necessarily with these with these activists themselves, but that Palestinian activists in certain parts like in Riyadh and things like that have gone off the radar. Um, uh, people don't know if they've been arrested or if, if um, they just for safety's sake have stopped um, engaging. Um, and so that that is, you know, generally what's happening to the Palestinian diaspora in the Gulf, I would say is just a overarching theme of a chilling effect for everybody who lives in the Gulf because of these these trends. So, yeah. Uh, Laura, we have a question about the um, the the um, the U.S. consulate in East Jerusalem that serve particularly Palestinians. I know this is something that you know well personally. Um, uh, this was something that was closed. It was closed down by the Trump administration. The Biden administration has not been willing to reopen it in the face of Israeli opposition. I wonder if you could just talk about why um, this uh, why this consulate in, in East Jerusalem matters um, and, and, and what significance it, it has that the, that the Biden administration does not have this 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 mission that actually to as a form of inter interaction with Palestinians. Sure, and and I actually want to take this as an opportunity to clarify something, which is, um, you know, for folks, th there are arguments being made that the administration can just do this. They could just open the re the consulate. They don't need permission. It was open before, and that is a misunderstanding of how diplomacy works, and it's a misunderstanding of how foreign missions work. Um, no country can go in and simply open a foreign mission on foreign soil and effectively declare that, that mission. Because a foreign mission is essentially an extension of the sovereignty of the country, right? That's how people take you know, refuge in foreign missions. They can't be then pulled out by police. Um, that, it's not how it works. I mean, there has to be agreement. The, the, the country has to agree. Um, and whether or not the US recognizes Israeli sovereignty across all of Jerusalem makes that more complicated. The fact is that the consulate that existed there existed long before the state of Israel existed. So until the Trump era, every administration could simply adopt a passive policy of continuing to leave it in place, which isn't a policy that, in, that e even in the face of the Jerusalem Embassy Act, you could just say it's always been that way, it has to be resolved. We're not doing something didn't cost a lot of political capital. To restore a consulate involves a lot of political capital, not just in terms of Congress, which doesn't want it to happen and you know, this comes with appropriations funding, but in terms of you have to get Israel's sign off on it. It is not something that the, the Biden administration could just wave their magic wand and do. They, I would argue they were in a strong position to actually say to Israel, we're going to do this immediately when they came into office, because it's something they promised when they were in the, in the, in the campaign and they were elected. And it was, it was something they could have done very quickly and, and I think pushed Israel on pretty well. And they chose not to. And the longer they waited, the harder it was. But it's not merely restoring status quo ante. Status quo ante was an ongoing passive position. Restoring it would take an, it is a very different act and would have a very different meaning. You know, in terms of what it means not having it there, I think, you know, the argument, I think, can be made that not having a separate mission that reports directly to Washington is has been problematic in terms of getting you know good reporting on you know what's happening in the West Bank. Not not good reporting in the sense that the diplomats at the embassy aren't great. I'm sure they're very good, but reporting that is actually focused on Palestinians and not filtered through the U.S.-Israel relationship at every step which is exactly why people like David Friedman and, 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 and Jason Greenblatt wanted it to be filtered through the embassy. They want the Palestinians to be treated as one more subset of a population that is fully under Israeli control and legitimately so. So, I mean, I think that has been a problem and it sounds to me like the administration has tried to 
fix that a little bit by putting the Palestinian section of the embassy back into a sort of independent status where it directly reports to Washington. And, you know, frankly, I, I would suspect that Ambassador Nides, who by all appearances has zero interest in anything to do with the Palestinians, is more than happy to not be signing off on those cables. Um, more broadly, it has a symbolic influence uh, impact, and we know that. I mean, the, the fact that the consulate existed this whole time up until Trump, despite Israel being really annoyed that there's consulates in, in East Jerusalem that serve the Palestinians, despite you know, Congress trying to push for its closure, was a statement that successive presidents, regardless of their political affiliations, saw the legitimacy of a, a, a diplomatic mission that dealt directly with Palestinians. And not having it sends the opposite message. Um, and, you know, this was never going to be easy. And by the way, I would argue for a lot of people who've talked about reopening the mission, you know, it, the idea that there would be a, a U.S. mission devoted to the Palestinians that just deals with Palestinians is actually not status quo ante. Status quo ante, the consulate also dealt with the settlements. It wasn't an ethnically based consulate. It was a geographically based consulate. So when I served at the consulate in the 90s, my, my beat was the settlements. It wasn't Palestinians in the West Bank. And, and if the framework going forward that people see as ideal somehow is that we have a mission that talks to the Palestinians and a separate mission that deals with Israelis from the river to the sea, then essentially you have one more piece of U.S. policy, which is now aligned with the Trump um, David Friedman approach of, of greater Israel. So it is, isn't actually a status quo ante. If I could just say one more thing, because you mentioned this yeah, before please. about settlements, I think it is important to note. And, and this is just to, to give a little bit of grace to the Biden administration. They inherited an incredibly problematic situation because when people talk about rolling back Trump policies, like with the consulate, it's not merely rolling back. What is required to roll it back is to actually assert something that no president ever had to affirmatively assert before. And on settlements, it's the same thing. You know, people talk about, well, they won't roll back the recognition of legality of settlements and say they're illegal, but no president has said settlements are illegal. I mean, you can find back in the Carter era some, some oblique references to the non-legitimacy of settlements. We have very careful language about legitimacy, never legality. And then people point to one legal advisor from the State Department from 20 some years ago. That isn't a president saying, no, 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 we've returned to the policies. For, for Biden to come out today and say, I'm rolling back the Trump recognition of legality of settlements, they're illegal, would be taking a position that is harder line on settlements than any president since 67. So, I mean, the, the Trump administration, again, with the Abraham Accords, the same thing. They created a new policy status quo that is, it's very expensive in political capital to divert course from in every aspect. Um, and I, I, I have some, some sympathy for how hard that is by the same token. I think that the Biden administration has, um, has just mismanaged this to such a high level. It's, it's almost, it's almost hard to see how they, how they could have done anything more than what they have done to sort of stay in the course of the Trump administration in the Middle East, um, which is kind of baffling. Uh, Frida, I wanted to ask you a question. You know, one of the things that for people as old as myself it, it, uh, is really kind of head spinning to watch in some ways in Washington these days is to see how fervently um, kind of um, pro-Israeli government groups uh, and institutions, you know, whether it's APAC or, you know, the Foundation for Defensive Democracies uh, um, or even the Washington Institute last year, I gave this big award to the uh, Crown Prince of, of, of the UAE. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when, you know, APAC cut its teeth, uh, became the institution it is today, fighting against 
the sale of U.S. surveillance AWACS planes to Saudi Arabia. Um, I'm still, I still try to quite get my head around how an organization that's called the Foundation for Defense of Democracies spends so much time defending um, uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia. But it seems to me one of the consequences of the Abraham Accords has been in Washington, in which you had, you know, the, the Gulf countries already had their own strong lobbying institutions. They already had quite a bit of influence their own, but there seems to have been a kind of a, a convergence of that, that lobbying infrastructure with the kind of pro-Israeli government lobbying infrastructure. It's quite potent, even though it, it does seem to make it a little bit harder to argue that the, the case for Israel is that it's a, it's, a, it's a leading life for democracy around the region. I, I wonder if you can talk about that impact and what impact it's had on debate in Washington. Thanks, Peter. And if you ever figure out um, how FDD can be doing this, please let me know. Yeah, maybe it's like KFC. You know, when KFC didn't want to have the word fried in it, it just went to the acronym. <laughs> so I hope people would forget that it stood for fried. So maybe it just, if you go to FDD, people would forget that the word democracy is in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think you point to something very important, and this has already been visible, I would say, at least 10, 15 years in Washington, D.C., I've been meeting with U.S. officials in which there's also been representatives of some of these groups or, or uh, similarly oriented groups and just seeing uh, what a staunch support and defense of Saudi Arabia and the UAE that they provide. Uh, so it's, it's, that change has already happened. Uh, what we're seeing now with the Abrams Accord is you know, adding the formality to it. Uh, and in many ways, that's also true when it comes to uh, security uh, uh, collaboration between these states. A lot of this has already been happening. Now it's just elevated to uh, a different level. Um, and, and I think it's, it, it certainly is undermining any claim that you know, this is driven by democracy or values or anything like that. Uh, it, I don't think it ever has been, but even the claim or the pretense of it is even more difficult to defend right now. There's a couple of things that bind them together, though. Uh, in which they find tremendous um, benefit uh, to do this. On the one hand, I'm sure as much as Saudi Arabia does have a lobby, and their lobby essentially is the defense industry. You don't have chapters of Saudi Americans or Americans that really have a fuzzy feeling about Saudi Arabia that are, are you know, scheduling meetings with the local members of Congress. Um, so their lobby is the defense industry and all of the different weapon systems that are built in almost every single congressional district, creating jobs. That's their lobby. But despite their lobby, they have had tremendous difficulties. We've seen how the progressives in Congress have completely turned away from Saudi Arabia. We've seen that there's been uh, bipartisan efforts to uh, hold Saudi Arabia accountable, stop the war in Yemen, etc. And there, the Saudis definitely need the support of some of the groups that you mentioned, and they have received it. In fact, when MBS, prior to becoming the infamous person that he is right now. When he came to Washington, D.C., I believe he only stayed in D.C. for two days and then he was going to um, uh, Silicon Valley and other places. Uh, one of the meetings he had immediately after the White House meeting was with FDD at their offices. So this, this, goes, um, this goes way back in, in many ways and it's been going on uh, in a way that has not been as visible but is increasingly visible right now. But then there's the other thing that really creates a common interest between both how the Israelis view things geopolitically and the Saudis. Yes, there is the Iran threat, but the Iran threat, A, is not unreal in any way, shape or form. They do perceive it, but I don't think it is driving it. In fact, if you take a look at how um, the UAE, for instance, where it was engaged in the region, 
at a time when it signed the Abrams Accord. It was actually fighting the Turks mostly throughout the region. They have a strong opposition to the Muslim Brotherhood. They were fighting them actively in Libya, for instance. Uh, that's not to say that they didn't have a strong uh, threat perception uh, uh, from Iran, but the idea that it, that threat perception was so important that it motivated them to do the uh, Abrams Accord, I'm not so convinced by. I think these, these other factors, the, the coalition with uh, Israel and Washington, etc. But the one thing that they truly see the region uh, um, uh, similarly towards the region is neither of these states wants to see the United States reduce its military presence in the Middle East. The U.S.'s military presence in the Middle East has created a very favorable balance for them, a balance that neither of them would have the ability to do on their own with the possible exception of Israel. But the balance that the Saudis, the Emiratis have been um, uh, benefiting from tremendously has been directly as a result of the security umbrella that the U.S. has provided. This is the key reason why they were against the JCPOA. It wasn't because they thought it was too short or that there were too many centrifuges or anything like that. It was the fact that it was the beginning of an opportunity for the United States to start withdrawing from the Middle East militarily. Not withdrawing economically or diplomatically or disengaging in that way, but not having uh, 50,000 plus American troops based in the region. That was the common threat that really, really brought them uh, together in the manner that they have right now. And this is the same reason I think a, a critical co a component of their motivation to go forward with this, because as I mentioned earlier on, the, a the designers of the Abrams Accord are very explicit. For this to survive, there needs to be continued American military support for it. This is something that binds the U.S. to the security of many of these dictatorships at a time when the American public overwhelmingly want to see U.S. troops come home from the Middle East. Uh, Dan, I wanted to t turn back to you. Um, you talked about shifts in, in Palestinian public opinion, about uh, increased uh, despair and also support among certain folks for, for violent resistance, what's happening in the Janine camp. I I'm, I'm curious what you think that the impact of increased Palestinian resistance um, whether violent or nonviolent, has on the Abraham Accords. I mean, we. I, I'm interested in, in what you saw happening in terms of Israel's relationship between itself and the Gulf countries during this period last May, when there was this this upsurge uh, across uh, across Israel Palestine, and whether you think in how you think that th those governments might respond to um, to even as something as significant as a, as a, as a third intifada, and uh, whether you think ultimately the Abraham Accords could sustain, uh, could, could survive it's, uh, such, such Palestinian mobilization. I think um, when we have the kinds of like levels of mobilization that we saw in like last May and June, um, it makes the position of some of these countries, and I'm sorry, there's like, somebody mowing the lawn, so I apologize. It makes the position of, of some of these countries really um, um, hard to hard to take for, uh, for their citizens. Um, now, that doesn't mean that they will back off the Abraham Accords if, if Palestinians are protesting. We saw Emirati visits to Jerusalem, like right as the protests were happening um, at Damascus Gate. Um, but what this does mean is that um, they have to kind of, maybe less so in the Emirates, but in other places, they have to think, twice about how um, the, the the pace and scope of their continued coordination. Um, uh, they have to think twice about what kind of uh, uh, backlash they might face from their own societies. Um, and so I, you know, I have some 
a, a paper coming out that that talks about how Palestine is this kind of mobilizing factor across the region. Um, and pro-Palestine activism is really one of the few spaces that fosters broader dissent um, across towards these authoritarian regimes. Um, and so with more Palestinian resistance, as you said, whether armed or unarmed, um, that facilitates um, or kind of adds, let's say, more um, risk uh, to to their uh, to their continued ability to to coordinate with Israel because there will inevitably be a societal backlash, even in places where we don't don't think about it that much. Like, I'll give you an example from Qatar in May when the Pal when the protests in Palestine were happening. Like there, you know, there were street uh, protests in Qatar. There were like these large car on uh, convoys, and and they they all met and had huge flags. And you know, <laughs> since when have Qataris been allowed to do any of that? But the Qatari regime like felt like they needed to let them do that um, because people were so upset. And so that's just like one small example, one small anecdote. But you can see how um, fear of societal backlash might. Uh, um, you know, make them think twice about the scope of their of their coordination. Um, and I think that's the case, particularly less so for the Emirates, who, you know, the the feedback loop between them and their society is quite uh, quite broken. Um, and you know, they conduct themselves as they see fit. But particularly in places like Saudi Arabia and 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 other parts of of the region, where you know there there is some level of civil society, there is uh, some level of dissent that they do have to be wary of. I don't know if I answered your question yeah. fully. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, we're going to go in one from, but Krita, I wanted to come to you just for a very brief last answer on the question of one of the things the Biden administration is saying is that their engagement with Saudi Arabia is paying off in Yemen, where there is a ceasefire. Do you buy that? And do you think that it's possible that this Biden engagement could have any positive effect in terms of ending this horrific Saudi uh, engagement in, in the war in Yemen? Uh, it would be fantastic, obviously, for the war in Yemen to end. And this is what Biden promised that he would do. So obviously, that's a very positive thing. Whether you can attribute it to uh, Biden caving to um, uh, MBS, I'm not so convinced by. There have been plenty of opportunities where Biden could have quite easily have done this. I mean, we just need to stop some of the support of the uh, providing um, ammunition and, and uh, support for the aircraft that the Saudis are using. Uh, and Biden chose not to do this. In fact, uh, NL Sheline and, and Quincy produced a brief that showed how there was a massive escalation by the Saudis. I believe it was in last September, um, uh, in which the Saudis were using essentially to be able to go on the offensive and then be able to say, OK, now we're in a position to go for a ceasefire. That doesn't seem to me have been uh, prompted by uh, Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia several months later. Um, uh, now, I would be delighted to see what the, what the administration would do to end this war, but I think we also have to recognize MBS has already himself come to the conclusion that he needs to find an exit. That exit would have been sought whether Biden was going to uh, Saudi Arabia or not. It would have been sought whether uh, there would be a normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel or not. So to push that forward as, as a consequence of the efforts of the administration, I'm not so convinced by that's great. Well, we'll have to make that the last word. Um, uh, thank you so much, uh, Donna, uh, Trita, and Laura for today's conversation. And thank you to everyone who joined us or listened to this event. We're glad to share this conversation with you. I tried to weave in your questions and we'll share all your questions with the panelists. Please check back at the FMV website 
fmep.org for a list of resources relating to the conversation we just had and for announcements of upcoming events, webinars, and podcasts. Thank you all until next time. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks.